Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. He's worked with some notable directors, David Lynch, the Coen brothers, John Woo, and Werner Herzog, to name a few. He's also consistently appeared in a large number of direct-to-stream and, before that, direct-to-DVD titles, sometimes up to six in a year. Yet, like all great actors, Nicolas Cage maintains the same distinctive quality and intensity across them all. In the February issue, Dan Pippenbring reviews Keith Phipps' new book about Cage and expounds upon what makes Cage so uniquely... What is it? What is it? What, what is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! Uniquely captivating. I spoke with Pipe and Bring about the actor's influences, his striking gestures, his cult following, my own apprehension about that cult, and how animated gifs and interviews about his personal life such as the one recently published in the Los Angeles Times in which he calls himself a goth, have influenced how we understand him as a star. Well, maybe we could just sort of burn through this, just get it out of the way right right off top. Mm-hmm. What are your top five Nicolas Cage movies? Oh, man, that is such a tough question. I'll go first. Okay, that's great. Wild at Heart. Yes. Snake Eyes. Ooh, good choice. The original dirtbag leftist filmmaker, Brian De Palma. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We got Bad Lieutenant. Mm Mm-hmm, also a great choice. Like Joe. Oh, okay, okay. And then, uh, did I already say Raising Arizona? You didn't. Okay, then Raising Arizona. And I mean, I feel like my choices are perhaps more sort of like aligned with the his collaborations with big auteurs, but I would love to hear yours. Yes. Yeah. I, I I mean, I share a number of them with you. The things that I want to get in there are Vampire's Kiss and also Adaptation, which I Mm, love. I think I would put Adaptation in place of Joe and maybe Vampire's Kiss. But wow, what, what do I want to drop out? I guess it would have to be Snake Eyes that wouldn't quite make the cut. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I know. That is heresy. And the shot alone where he where De Palma's just sort of panning over different people's hotel rooms, I think it is. And you kind of get to see oh what's going on in there is masterly. And Cage in, in the opening tracking shot, I think, is is just marvelous yeah. in, in that movie. So it's tough. But well, it's funny to think now about how many films, especially I feel like based on a true story or biopics, like they start off with a one shot tracking shot and you go sort of like, you know, it's like somebody's walking around the studio back lot and, da, 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 and it's trying for this sort of grandiosity and scope. And then like the rest of the movie is just like close up of someone talking close up of the person they're talking to. <laughs> it's, it's just like they use their one piece of art right off the top. Yeah, exactly. And there's nothing yeah. left. Yeah, it's a- becoming a bit of a tradition and even the people who do it frequently like I'm, I'm thinking of like the tracking shot in licorice pizza that to me uh, much though i loved it when i compare it to the more ambitious shot that opens say boogie nights uh, you know i have to wonder if it's something of a retread yeah i mean you you make the point in your piece that nicholas cage has these very 
Well, we can get into how to describe <laughs> how to describe his performances. Yeah. You describe in the first minutes of Face Off, for instance, Cage gives a full tilt gyration of his head, like someone rocking out at a Black Sabbath concert. The identical move shows up early in Zandali, which is a romantic movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, likewise, in Wild at Sorry, what? Nominally romantic. Anyway. Nominally romantic. Uh, likewise, in Wild at Heart, after he bludgeons a man to death on the brass handrail, Cage bows his head and juts his arm out, pointing an acrimonious finger into the middle distance. You can see him do the same thing in Vampire's Kiss when he says, am I getting through to you, Alva? Um, I'm not performing that correctly. Thank you, <laughs> It's, it's, <laughs> who has this musicality to it that is yes yeah this is all a long quote from your review i'm not coming up with this extemporaneously and you you end you end this little run here by saying what are we to make of this recycling what are we to make of the fact that on at least three occasions cage's characters speak of the female anatomy as a peach and that he definitely improvised at least one of these lines. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear more about the role of repetition in Cage's work because he has this explosiveness, but there's still, there's this consistency to it, which is obviously part of the charm, but even down to the, the head movements. Yeah, I think that's kind of what makes him so fun to follow in part and what has made his career uh, as Phipps writes in the book kind of such a joy or at least a singular thing to behold over the decades because you do you do become a kind of student of his little tics and mannerisms and to my mind you don't see him try to obscure those the way that some more conventional actors might. The The effort to lose himself in the role is there. Don't get me wrong. I think he really prizes himself on his ability to do that. And I'm not saying he doesn't prepare for certainly he does. But there's these certain kind of ineluctable, inescapable parts of him that are going to end up committed to celluloid no matter what. And the head movements are kind of among them. There's certain lilting styles to his speech, the, the California in his voice, as I think I write in the piece, that also just kind of end up bubbling up to the surface. And, and I is it like in spite of his best efforts that that's happening or because of his best efforts? I mean, I'm not altogether sure. But yeah, there is this kind of short sort of list of, of maneuvers and things that he gets into that he's always repeating. And I think if you like them and if they they are somehow emblematic to you of this this man's sort of tortured psyche or or even just his sense of humor then it's almost like a bit of automatic fan service to find them anyway all he has to do is show up and i love that and i mean i think it's important to note that hollywood rewards obvious acting mhm mm you know the things that are big and melodramatic and nick cage is kind of beyond all that like he's crossed the line back and forth between what is too much so many times and at one point you quote sean penn's remark that he's not so much an actor as a performer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so i would love to hear sort of like you talk about the rules of hams uh in popular culture because i i mean like look at house of gucci like the movie's gonna win every award <laughs> which is just nothing but hams like adam driver is the only like sort of normal person in yes. that. and everyone else is just like 
<laughs> but you know, the, like hams have a role in popular cinema, but Cage is distinct from that in in some way. Yeah, yeah, it, it seemed cruel of Penn to me to write him off as as nothing more than a ham, and I think that's usually been the critical line in dismissing him that he is actually kind of not differentiable from any number of other actors like the whole cast of House of Gucci who are just constantly turning it up to 11 and letting the rest, letting the chips fall where they may. But yeah, there is something distinct and I think he's aware of it and it's whatever he's trying to pin down when he coins these phrases like nouveau shamanic, (laughs) which I love and which does seem to get at something special about him. But how to draw the distinction best. It's it's like a, a ham is, is just kind of going for outsized effects, kind of taking the normal spectrum of human emotions and just amplifying them past their norms, maybe. And with Cage, it's like there's actually an entirely different spectrum of emotions that have rough analogs to what we would call anger, happiness, sadness, but also kind of blend those and recombine them. He's almost like a, an emotional centrifuge or something. Like you just end up with slightly new stuff. And it doesn't seem to me quite hammy. It's, it's more like surrealist or absurdist or something. So that makes his acting, outsized though it may be, kind of separate from the, the, the ham phenomenon to me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I don't think there's, I wouldn't describe someone like, I mean, John Lithgow is a ham, right? Obviously. Sure, sure. But, but, but he's he's doing something kind of different from what Cage is doing. I, and I like that you're centering on that. And what I also really like is that language about facial expressions, gestures, and what an actor does it's it's pretty it's imprecise, right? Sure. So I guess how did you attempt to convey what Cage does that is at once so recognizable and strange? Because there are many moments throughout this where it's you you get it into clear focus, even though it's not you know we don't have a word for uh, you have a name for a close up what that is, but you don't have a name for what he's doing. Yeah, because it. I think it does take a kind of step back to look at his whole career for it to really come into focus. And you're right, it, it kind of eludes the grammar of film in a way. But it also, at the same time, is is so fine-toothed and so specific. And it, and it is almost smaller than, than a frame-by-frame thing, what he seems to be doing. It's like a whole psychology. And I chose to focus, I guess, on on a lot of the early movies because I think it's a little easier to capture it in those just because he's sort of figuring it out on the fly. So there's the spirit of invention in those early movies that kind of dies away maybe after like Wild at Heart, say, or, or thereabouts. And then he's sort of like, all right, I've got this. I, I, I know what I'm doing. But in the early ones, like you can kind of see him trying it on in a way. And I think focusing on those, on the specifics of those, made it easier for the, the kind of career as a whole to to come into view. And yeah, I was just looking for, I, I mean, it, honestly, it wasn't much simpler than just thinking of what was still in my head from those movies after having watched them, in some cases, years ago. I mean, it's been a little while since I saw Peggy Sue Got Married, but I could always conjure the line, you mean my wag? You know, that's like... <laughs> 
that's just been rattling around in my mind and always will be, you know, I'll be on my deathbed and that I will still remember that I will forget my own children's names, but I'll <laughs> say like in Peggy Sue got married, <laughs> Nicholas Cage is like, you did my way. And so then I revisited those and kind of dissected them more closely to see what it was that had left them so indelibly on my mind. Yeah, it's funny because I I remember I read this review of Color Out of Space and the, the criticism was, oh, well, you don't believe Cage is like a normal suburban dad. And I'm like, this is H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, He's yeah. literally doing what H.P. Lovecraft did with language, with acting. Like, how was, I mean, I, I love that movie. I thought it was great. I enjoyed it, too. I mean, you get to see him, uh, what does he milk in that movie? He's milking like a... a <laughs> like llamas or alpacas? Alpaca, I think that's it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And it totally makes sense to me that Lovecraft kind of speaks to him so deeply. But yeah, it, it does seem like a strange gripe to say, like, well, he's not a believable suburban dad, because in what world is he supposed to be? Certainly not in the world of that film. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's something, again, one of many things that I will hold on to for no good reason uh, until I die. And then all this other stuff just gets pushed out of my brain. Exactly. Exactly. But that could be one measure of actorly greatness. I mean, they're ability to kind of scar something of theirs on to your brain tissue, certain facial expressions and, and just the emotions that they stand for, which is of course why he became so gifable, you know? Yes. I would love to actually talk about how animated gifts have really changed our reception to actors. But first I want to talk about stay on performance for a second sure. and talk about the role of Elvis in Cage's life and career. And like, you know, he married Lisa Marie Presley. Yeah. Like that's how much of an Elvis fan he was. And, you know, I, I think of other performers, other actors, popular figures, you know, from the 90s who modeled themselves, well, 80s and 90s, who modeled themselves on Elvis, like Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. You know, but, but Elvis has this cultural signifier that is just disappeared so it, w- it would be interesting to hear about elvis and his imprinting on nick kate yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because that's something that i had sort of toyed with writing about it does seem like the kind of key to all cage mythologies is elvis presley for sure <laughs> and it's a little hard to untangle it exactly it's interesting that you bring up andrew dice clay I I was also thinking sort of of the broader 90s Elvis renaissance or even of the kind of greaser comeback when suddenly people were like talking about Greece again and watching that. Of course, like Travolta is such a pale imitation of of someone like Elvis compared to uh, Cage, who does kind of, I don't know, it's like that moment where Elvis is kind of gyrating his hips and girls are fainting and and the, the world of rock and roll is forever changed. You can maybe see that as like a touchstone for Cage. And then he's like, all you have to do is move a certain way and you get this electric reaction out of people. And I think those gestures that I write about, like the head rocking movement and and the even like the finger pointing definitely come from Elvis to some degree, maybe even directly. But and the voice, of course, a bit in, in Wild at Heart. Uh, Wild at Heart, that's like the pay on to Elvis. I think Cage has even come out and said that. I wish he would speak more about what it is 
that he so enjoys in Elvis, because I feel like there is some kind of connective tissue there because there's that, that exaggerated quality to Elvis too. So it's almost like instead of learning what we would think of as hammy acting on the theatrical stage as a thespian, even though I, I see that Cage has recently called himself a, a thespian, he's more like learning how to be that big through rock music, through early rock music. I think even if you asked Nick Cage what Elvis, how Elvis has shaped his career, he couldn't put it into words yeah. because it's just such a part of his physicality. I think even the way he makes eye contact sometimes, or yeah. you know, there's something about that that has this kinetic Elvis connection. Yeah. And not even just the Elvis at the peak of his powers, but I feel like right. the later, <laughs> more shambling, tragic Elvis is also there and probably also near and dear to Cage, which I love because, I mean, that's like, that's just such an American story. That's, if that's kind of embedded in the DNA of all those movies, then so much the better. Well, and I think definitely sort of the turn in Cage's career, not not sort of forced by you know him falling out of favor in Hollywood, but but literally losing a ton of money and then being forced to do a lot a lot a lot of direct-to-video movies it it does mirror Elvis in a way and it, and I mean you you say in the piece that consensus held that Cage's life was the best Cage movie mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would love to explicate that a bit more yeah, yeah. I mean, his his kind of personal follies and, and his penchant, uh, apparently right up to this very minute, as I'm hearing that there's this great new interview that I've missed, and it, it can tend to outshine his performances because he's now inhabiting, in a very actorly way, the, the role of eccentric actor in his own life. And the Lisa Marie Presley marriage, as you said, is kind of maybe the pinnacle of that to some degree. I mean, what was happening there? It's it, it's hard to say. It's so weird. Yeah. Why did she say yes? Yeah. That's what I want to know. Well, I remember there, maybe it's in the Phipps book or maybe it was elsewhere that he had prepared a kind of elaborate treasure hunt for her at one point. And he did seem capable of these really grand romantic gestures that as I read about them had me swooning. I was like, wow, that's must be pretty nice to have a treasure hunt prepared for you by Nicolas Cage. That's, that's <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say yes. Oh yeah, yeah. But it is weird to marry someone who's like obsessed with your father. Yeah, <laughs> that is a strange choice to make. But, but we're not here to we're to not here to scrutinize the psychology of Murray. Who uh, we can't. Yeah, but <laughs> but with Cage, yeah, there there's such a diversity of crazy things that come out of his mouth and and the little kind of interests he pursues, whether it's, you know, the Holy Grail or like an aversion to the way that certain animals have sex. It's, it's a very cultivated eccentricity. It doesn't seem like without affectation in a way, you know? And I think, I think that's where the idea of his kind of method trolling comes into play. I think he really from a very precocious age was like, okay, I can use the media as this tool to project a certain image of myself. 
And that's why he has his publicist send out a note that noting that he has this monitor lizard named Smokey and specifying the length of the monitor lizard, two and a half feet. And I, I think once he saw how much like catnip that was to certain forms of, of media reporter, he was like, well, let's just go gonzo with this. And I think it's always been a very useful tactic to obscure whatever demons he really is facing and in a way to kind of keep a measure of privacy. I mean, he can give interview after interview and still make headlines and still have us talking about him and wondering about him. It, it's his form of mystique. It's like a gonzo mystique. Yeah, I think that's a really smart way to discuss his star text because, again, he's he's such an active author of it in a way that, you know, obviously everyone has everyone has publicists, everyone has someone photoshopping their Instagram photos. Like there's all this, there's so much artifice, obviously it's Hollywood, but he does it in a way that is obvious, but very pleasurable. And as you say, creates some, you know, some distance. And he can be just sort of like living on a private island with his, I don't know, like his pet crow or whatever, and it's yeah. fine. <laughs> his pet crow. I can't believe I'm, I've missed this about the crow. As soon as we stop talking, I'm going to be like, King Crow, Google, take me there. Show me the crow. He also says, I'm kind of goth. Yeah. It's like, of course. Well, of course. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was. That's not surprising. He was or is friends with um, Marilyn Manson, I know. Um, and that's that's an interesting uh, dyad right there. But I, I do think, uh, he's also just really very funny. I think he's great at kind of erecting this Rococo palace of oddities for all of us to enjoy. And, and it just happens to be his life. If you enjoy listening to the Harper's podcast, you may also like the podcast of the London Review of Books. I'm Thomas Jones, an editor at the LRB. And most weeks, you can hear me in conversation with an LRB writer about a recent contribution of theirs to the magazine. In recent episodes, I've talked to Rivka Galchen about the long history of anti-vaccination movements. In almost every single one of the kind of case studies in the Larson book, there's a, a contentious political election going on uh, in Nigeria in one case, in Colombia in another case. And we, we can add um, in the US in a further case. And to Colin Tabin about the letters, life and novels of John McGahn. Yeah, the style is both utterly transparent and filled with hidden rhythms and ways of hitting the reader's nervous system. Listen out every Tuesday for a new episode of the London Review of Books podcast. There are some times where I resist Cage because I am annoyed by the fan base around him to a certain extent you know it's just yeah. like um like it's like ugly christmas sweaters where it, that thing has gone from being like ironic to being liked by people who just suck and don't actually you know what i mean <laughs> like it's just it's become cringe yes yeah there's certain forms of irony that just end up pickling themselves into actually something almost sincere that is the most disgusting of all. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you, speaking of this sort of Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail to a certain degree, there's there's an upcoming film called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, where Cage plays 
Nikki Cage, I believe it is. Yeah. And he's this big star who gets, you know, who's had financial disasters, has been forced to do all these direct-to-TV movies. He agrees to go to this guy's island because he's like his biggest fan. And you haven't seen this film. Yeah. But you describe Phipps's summary of the film as self-absorption, self-awareness, self-parody. If anyone can hit the trifecta, it's Cage, who reaches the zenith and the nadir with the same hand. Mm -hmm. And how do you navigate that, perhaps the more annoying side of Cage appreciation? Like, how do you keep it pure for yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it helps that I'm not on social media or Reddit or kind of any of the, the loci of the more annoying ends of Cage fandom. And I think I think the way to do it is to stick to the movies, I want to say. But as you've just indicated, they're about to take a turn of their own with this very meta attempt that he's making. And I read the screenplay for that movie. And I've now, I think since I wrote the piece, the trailer has come out. And oh, it's a coin toss, you know? It's a coin toss as to whether this is going to be the kind of winking celebration of, of Cage or if it will end up further propelling the, the kind of flatter, more bland side of Cage fandom where people are just like, that guy's crazy. And I do fear that it's going to end up being the latter more than the former. Because he's already just so good at being meta when he's not being meta, you know? As we were saying earlier, like, there's a continuity to a lot of these performances that already rewards the, the close observer. So to pull out all the stops and, and play himself like that, I just don't really know if that's going to add much to the equation. It's a little like, I saw the new Scream recently, and... Of course, all of the Scream movies have this extremely meta part to them where they're commenting on horror movie tropes and cliches and all that. Well, Wes Craven was a professor of English, so his postmodernism is coming from a very interesting place. However... Yeah, however, I mean, what works so wonderfully in that first scene of the first movie, which is, you know, one of the best scenes in any horror movie ever, as far as I'm concerned, by, by this latest reboot, just no longer really cuts the mustard. And the efforts they've had to go to in the newest Scream to keep the meta commentary fresh and lively in an internet age and to have the meta meta commentary on the fact that they know that they're a franchise that's supposed to be meta, it just ends up being incoherent and kind of tiresome and it loses the flavor of the original one. And that's what I worry could happen with a movie like The Unbearable... I almost just said lightness of being because I can't even internalize the the massive talent or, or whatever it's called. It's like, we don't need him to go there because he's already done it. I mean, that's one thing I love about adaptation is that seeing him play twins is kind of automatically that. And that movie has plenty of meta theatrics and Charlie Kaufman goes down the rabbit hole in I think a really eloquent way. So I'm I'm just... I'm reluctant. I'm reluctant to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, what you're describing is such a, again, I want to enjoy it. And then sometimes I just have a problem with it because it feels a little too pre-chewed, right? Like yeah. the Lego movie phenomenon where, or anything Phil Lord and Chris Miller worked on where it's like, okay, 21 Jump Street, very funny. But 
the the wave of imitators that have followed there there's something not intelligent i guess the best way to say it is just it's pre-chewed it's a it's not being meta in a smart way or the level of meta is so cranked up there's nothing left for you to enjoy yeah yeah exactly it's just all wry comment on the nature of hollywood and the franchise mentality and everything like that it ends up being kind of evacuated of whatever it is that's supposed to make you want to go to the movies in the first place, which is tragic. And that's, that's, I think, what keeps people going back to Cage, even if they're kind of unwilling to admit to themselves that it's more than a joke to them, to spend that much time watching this one guy just because you think he's kind of crazy or because he makes good, his, his face makes for a good gif. Yeah, there's something more to be unpacked there. Could we talk about how things like animated gifts have changed our receptions of actors? Because I think it's, (laughs) there's so many times where, I think this is wonderful sometimes, not all the time, but that someone replies to a bit of text with an image and that it's a looping image and that it just goes, sometimes part of the response is that this thing just keeps happening and happening and happening. So how would you say animated GIFs have generally influenced our connection to stars and also our understanding of who they are and you know how they can also be run into the ground? <laughs> it's a great question and really complicated. I mean, there's certain GIFs. Uh, I'm thinking of what might be my very favorite Cage GIF, which is just the one of him from the early scene in Face Off where he's um, pinching the girl's butt in the choir and then kind of looking up as the camera pulls back with this orgiastic expression. Um, And to see that repeated, I mean, I cannot help but laugh at it every time I see it. And I always let it go for, you know, at least 20 rounds because it it does seem to get better with, with each go around. And in his case, or in the case of actors that do seem to really thrive on gesture and expression and who have these kind of, frame by frame explosions, I guess. The GIF is a really wondrous thing because I I do think it sort of heightens your appreciation of every little micro change in his face. And then when, the the thing is, if, if that's all you ever see, then I think it really is utterly decontextualized and kind of meaningless. In a way, it's like the best thing would be maybe to watch all of Face Off and then go watch the GIFs as a sort of, you know, like if there were still DVDs, I would say that they should just come with a bonus feature of just gifts. Where you can then kind of you study put them your, on your phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like now that you've seen the movie, relive these very atomic moments from it in excruciating detail in perpetuity. And that would be marvelous. But yeah, it is it's the risk that's taken in in taking them out of context that as you can say, will sometimes run people into the ground and i think cage has been a victim of that to some degree like that's where the phenomenon of cage rage really comes from it's not from people watching the movies it's from people watching the gifts and thinking like wow this guy's really psycho and yeah i I don't know any anything that is that is going to reduce a film that way is gonna come with a certain threat i guess to to actors in particular and it, it's not even just for actors. I mean, there's anyone captured on a camera can be turned into a GIF and it can lead to a kind of 
public shaming and in, in that suddenly this weird, almost involuntary thing that you've done with your face will be the most famous thing about you. Right. No, I mean, um, I think it's part of a larger trend on the internet, I would say, where, you know, a person is only what you can find of them through Google or on Twitter or wherever. And, you know, it really narrows our understanding of people as people. And obviously this is a bigger issue when it comes to, as you say, sort of like online bullying or, you know, being overly reductive, dehumanizing in some instances. But I would just go back and say, I think that phenomenon ties interestingly into what you said, if there were still DVDs. Yeah. Because there's so much stuff that, you know, we have, we live in this age of the myth of availability where it's like, oh yeah, you could get anything on streaming and you really can't. And you can't even right. own the movie. Like you can pay for a movie on iTunes or whatever and then they'll take it away. Or <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this insane reality where it's like, Hollywood definitely thought that DVDs were going to save the industry and that was foolish in some respects. But now that they're gone or largely gone and there's no, it's really hard to access them. It's, it's this huge loss. And, and people do get reduced to these series of, like, Viola Davis is more than her picking up her purse and shaking her head. Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> That's a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. They become almost like, I don't even know what the best metaphor would be, but yeah, they're no longer people. They're just these imagistic stand-ins of emotions. And that's because they're so good at expressing emotions. I mean, the actorly face is this kind of ultimate vessel for these feelings. But why is it that that's, you only want that kind of crystallized moment? You don't want narrative and you don't even want sound. I mean, half of movies is sound. Well, I'd say, I would say more than half. Why? I agree. But you're, you're totally right. It's like, it's like a snow globe that you just shake yes. up whenever you want. Yeah. And yet there is something really great about the ability to express ourselves it's exactly like, I'm feeling really pissed off then i can go find nicholas cage being pissed <laughs> off and that will express it better than my own words can exactly speaking of things in context well how's that for a transition <laughs> how would you describe cage fitting into movies where he's a supporting character like cotton club which is his first on-screen death yeah, yeah. I I like him in supporting roles. I sort of wish he would do more of them, especially now that he's in this phase where he's taking on a lot of work. It's it's strange to me. I, I don't really know enough about the mechanics of the Hollywood deal, but I would imagine that as an alternative to taking lead roles in a bunch of low-budget movies, you could... And are probably offered, if you're someone like Nicolas Cage, a bunch of supporting roles in kind of higher budget movies. Well, you if you're if you're pegged as like the big reaction guy, you might not get offered those roles. Yeah. Well, he did, I, I can think of one, which is the uh, Enter the Spider-Verse role where he gives the voice of the noir Spider-Man. Oh, um, of course. Another Phil which, Lord and Chris Miller yeah. <laughs> picture. Exactly. Exactly. And his arrival in there was, I mean, when I first heard his voice and saw that movie, I was like, oh my God, it's Cage. And he's black and white Spider-Man wearing a fedora. Like, I was sold. That was worth the price of admission for me yeah. right there. So he does have that that power uh, as a supporting actor. 
or even as a kind of co-lead, Phipps writes a lot about um, Birdie, which I did not really discuss in the piece, but he thinks that it's like prime early Cage and this really overlooked masterly performance of his. And I'm kind of with him on that. It's actually very grounded. I mean, Matthew Modine plays what we would regard today as the Cage role. He's the one who kind of makes a break with reality and is losing his shit. And Cage is the one trying to keep him here on Earth. And he does a great job with that. But it is interesting that he's so intent on on being the lead, I guess, these days. Well, or that's all that's available to him. Again, these are things that, you know, even the people who know Clinton say because of like, the pre- predominance of non-disclosure agreements and whatnot. But it doesn't feel like there was a fork in the road with Cage's career. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like there was a moment where he could have gone one way. Instead, he went this other way. There feels like a natural progression. And part of part of your review, you discuss how his personal experience growing up presenting his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola, the anger over his parents' divorce, things like that, and how they they influence not just his performance, but which which roles he's playing. Yeah, that that kind of origin story that he styled for himself is very interesting to me. In the fact-checking for the piece, we really tried to pin down exactly what it was about his experience with Coppola, with Francis Ford Coppola, that, that so kind of energized him and what he ascribes to revenge. Because he's actually... I hate to use the word, but he's sort of cagey about it in interviews. (laughs) It had to happen once. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Glad we got it out of the way, really. But yeah, he's, he's not, he doesn't ever really fully articulate what it was about that time living in his uncle's shadow that so drove him. You know, was it purely a matter of material wealth? Was it that he got to see the kind of up close and personal world of making movies through his uncle? It seems like something did really kind of give him this feeling of an outsider or someone who had to do something to catch up. But it's not quite as simple as just a keeping up with the Joneses thing. So I've always wondered what it was about that early experience that really drove him. But he returns to it again and again, even as in other ways, he he clearly tries to distance himself from that whole family. Right. I mean, again, going back to influences for a second, uh, he chose the name Cage in part because of Luke Cage, who is this, I think it's the, he's he was the first black Marvel superhero who's kind of. Yeah, I think you're right about that, yeah. And and he's 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 this man with bulletproof skin. He's kind of like this black exploitation hero of Aunt Lalette. And, you know, to think, you know, Cage, the fact among comic book fans, I think the fact that Cage is also like, yeah, I love comic books. I mean, obviously before like every movie ever is only a comic book movie. But back in the 90s, that was something that really he was apart from other actors for that reason. And it really defined, you know, I think you could also argue that some of the bigness is coming from those panels and the the precision of the poses and the repetition of the poses. Yeah, that's very true. I, I hadn't thought about that, but he does, he ends up taking more from Luke Cage than you would think. It's not at all like a throwaway homage. And then you've got me thinking too about something that Phipps writes in the book that I didn't really get a chance to write about, which is Cage's success, despite really his, his lack of a franchise. He didn't have 
tentpole thing to kind of keep him going. There was no Mission Impossible. The closest thing was National Treasure, which only had two movies. And how strange it is, given, as you say, that he was kind of one of the earliest actors to praise comic books, with the exception of this failed Superman movie and and Ghost Rider and this little role in Spider-Man. He's been kind of on the outside of what is far and away the most lucrative vein of Hollywood movie. I mean, to love comic books and end up being only Ghost Rider, you know, it almost seems a tragedy. It's cruel, which is why I really wish that that Superman movie had had come to light. Although the fact that it didn't and there's just this strange test footage floating around on YouTube kind of adds to what we were talking about earlier, where Cage has really erected this whole mythology around himself. In a way, it's it's better to be almost Superman than to be Superman. Yeah, I mean, the best movies are the movies that we just dream happened. Right, where it is this total, like, you're not encumbered by the reality of sitting through, like, a big, dumb uh, Kevin Smith monologue where he's talking about, like, you know, Pepsi, ironically, or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's this blissful thing. And you can pull it up any time now because of the internet. And this thing that was formerly just sort of this dirty little secret or this, this failed project gets to live on in a really interesting way. Yeah, that's that's very true. What could have been dreams of cage. Dreams of cage. And I guess we keep dancing around this, but how much time have you spent with those DTV movies? Because as you say he does like some years he does six movies. And there's constantly yeah. coming out, but you wouldn't know it unless you're searching for Nick Cage on whatever streaming, you know, like Tubi or whatever. Yeah, I I have watched a few of them, by no means close to all of them. There was one called Kill Chain that I watched. Um, this is almost always when I'm hungover. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the time to reach for the, the VOD cage, I think. And usually I find them just because on my Apple TV or whatever, they, they know that I like cages, they know everything about me. So they will show me anything that he that he appears in no matter how slight or how bad. So sometimes I'll just see them and I'll be tempted. I'll know it's bad and, and I'll watch it anyway. There was another one set in medieval times whose name is eluding me at present. So I, I've seen a few of them. God, what was that one called? It was really bad. It also had oh, the guy who played Anakin in the, in the Star Wars prequels was in it. Outcast? I think it might be Outcast, yeah. Uh, Hayden Christensen, yes. a very, a very interesting career tra- trajectory there too. I would argue, um, yeah. worthy, worthy of further investigation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, in a way, proving our point about it's better to be almost the the superhero than to be the hero, or in this case, the villain. Yeah. I think anyone slotted into that role was essentially doomed. Oh, yeah. I mean, there there is sort of this group of people who are trying to, who really love the the prequels, and that's yes. just something where it's like I feel totally distant from film culture at this moment, <laughs> and I don't yeah. know if I want to participate in it if that's what it's gonna become because those are also like the Zack Snyder people, and I'm just like I don't get this, yeah, yeah. I yeah. just don't understand. <laughs> yeah. 
there's that marriage of of more conventional film culture, as you say, with the kind of geeky tech culture and the especially now the superhero culture that just leads to some very strange places. Just flatness. That's like, why do you, yeah. why do you like flatness? I would love to know. Yeah. Well, it's it's probably buried in a ten thousand word essay that maybe doesn't even really address your concern, but that's neither here nor there. And you know, Mandy, another film that's this year in twenty twenty one, I should say. Twenty twenty one he was in Pig, which was mm-hmm. kind of like John Wick, but with a pig. Yes. Yeah. I felt the same thing. I was totally baffled by the the warmth with which pigs received. I mean, and, and I love pigs. Uh, I think pigs are great. They're great. They're great. Well, you hardly get to see the pig, unfortunately. It's really, should have been called pig owner. Um, yeah, that movie seems to have done wonders for Cage's reputation in a way and, and has kind of bolstered him in a way that I think much better fare has not. Well, like you mentioned, Joe, which um, Phipps is also really a fan of, which I guess kind of lifted him a bit, but seems like it was largely overlooked compared to something like Pig. Or Mandy, because that was really like, I know this moment among cinephiles where it's like Cage is back. Yeah. Because people knew that he was doing like this sort of this endless grind on these smaller bad movies because he needed the money. And then Mandy came out and it was just like... Truly. Uh, and even Color Out of Space, which is on that same wavelength. But why would you say that happened? I was Pig the One. Yeah, or Mandy or Color Out of Space. Why out of any of those three? I mean, was it because they weren't just on streaming immediately? Like, what is there anything about the performances there that makes it? In Mandy, certainly there is. That's That's primo cage, I think. There's gravity there, but he's also going buck wild enough to uh, to play into his stereotypes. Um, so he's kind of subverting and 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 entertaining at the same time, and it's just beautiful. I mean, it's a it's a very handsome movie and and spooky and all. Big, I'm less receptive to because he actually seemed very kind of cold and affectless in in Pig to me. Um, very much in the the John Wick model, as you said, where it's a uh, this revenge movie. But God help us if he were mourning, say, a woman or even another human being. It's got to be a pig, a pet. No, he works with the pig. They're truffle hunters. That's true. They're co-evolved. They're, <laughs> they are. But yeah, as a as a comment on the kind of foodie scene, it ended up being much more solemn and and less scathing. Than I would have expected. I mean, he is, of course, taking down all these highfalutin restaurants, and and there's that pretty great scene in in the very snooty restaurant where he reminds the chef that what he really wanted to open was an English pub, and there's supposed to be this comment on authenticity there, but it doesn't really make sense, and I don't really believe Cage as a symbol of it in Pig. He just seems kind of depressed i guess depressed in the way that people in real life are depressed and that he's muted and and affectless and just kind of wandering around in a haze yeah i don't want to see movies about real people all the time i mean jesus christ <laughs> it's too much 
I mean, I keep wondering. I mean, I have to say, I, I saw a bunch of films at Sundance this year, and really only two of them had people wearing masks. And I'm wondering when is that gonna is that ever gonna hit, or are we just gonna have movies where it's supposedly about real people, but they're existing in this perfect fantasy where the pandemic never happened, and they get even further. Yeah. You know, it's just like I mean, superhero movies obviously. There are no consequences when when the building explodes, you know, like the office building explodes, they just keep going. Right. There's no there's no mourning, et cetera, et cetera. But the no masks thing, like, is it or is it just going to be too depressing for people? I know I, I have a friend who I see a lot of movies with. And he said very early in the pandemic I, that he never wanted to see it depicted on screen, uh, giving voice to that protective impulse that you just said. But then I, I think of Bad Luck Banging. Oh, my God. I love that movie. I, I loved it, too. And I think a lot of my love for it sprang out of this very willfully exasperating depiction of the pandemic that is all over it and, and the trials and tribulations that come with, with trying to settle the score or even have a conversation among adults when everyone's in masks and getting their news primarily from their little screens. And yeah, that that is such a hideous, brilliant movie because it grapples directly with everything that we're having to deal with every time we put a mask on. Yeah. No, I think, and I mean, just as an aside, I think it's so refreshing to see sex return to the cinema in that movie and the way it returns, I think is very yes. brilliant. The whole film is just, and the, it has these totally different textures, these three different parts that are just formally distinct but that it ends with a facebook comment section argument <laughs> it's just yeah like, exactly. this, this guy knows what's happening <laughs> yeah fingers on the pulse a weak and dying pulse of, of yeah. civilization <laughs> well it's it's time <laughs> i didn't really have to think about it but i i wanted to end by asking you so in the piece you write, you like mainlined Nick Cage movies for two weeks and that you couldn't really put the experience into words. But perhaps now that you've recovered, because <laughs> it does definitely mess with you. I mean, did you lose perspective on the bigness or what made that so odd? That's a great question. I think it 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 made me more susceptible than just seeing like one or two movies would to the kind of fantasy that Hollywood really wants you to believe, which is that you're kind of friends with these people or that they're in your life in some way. Cage was suddenly just on my radar for such a large percentage of the time that I did begin to fall into this illusion that I knew him in some way or that he was just kind of around, you know? Sometimes my fiance will say like, if we're watching a lot of someone like, oh, he's our friend, you know, as, as a great joke. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, Nick Cage, he's our friend. And and then you're like, well, who am I friends with? This guy who is either inscrutable or berserk half the time and who has this labile, expressive face that is unlike any other face that I can see. And it's really, I, I could also liken it maybe to... Um, when you play Tetris too much and you close your eyes and you see the falling blocks. <laughs> no, that's good. You that's very good. Your, <laughs> you close your eyes and you see Nicolas Cage's face. And I don't know. I just, I, I came to really simultaneously love and distrust that face. 
it was like this puzzle that I kept coming back to, like a Tetris puzzle, something I had to solve before I ran out of time and got a game over screen. So yeah, there 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 was this weird urgency and and it was very pleasant, of course. I, I but but there was also this strange edge to it where it's like, why am I thinking of this guy so much? Yeah, that's the thing. You can never really complain about getting paid to watch movies. However, <laughs> there's there is a toll. There is a toll sometimes. Yes, um, yeah. Has, you know, since you've recovered from this beautiful, terrible experience, have you watched any new Nick Cage movies? I have not seen one since the last one I watched was Matchstick Men, I think. Because I'd always seen, I, I was guilty of what I was talking about earlier. I'd seen the the kind of peak moment from it where he's talking about pissing blood. And I was like, you know what? I've never seen the whole movie. So I watched all of Matchstick Men. And I really enjoyed it. I, I love Cage when he's kind of in the sleazy end of his rope mold. And his depiction of OCD in that movie is is heartening, I think. It ends up kind of cutting through the noise. And, you know, made me think he's my friend. Well, that's the most important thing. And I feel, I feel bad that we didn't even get to talk about the Wicker Man remake, which is like one of the most iconic. Yes, that's kind of the one that everyone has seen a part of and very few people would ever actually sit through the entirety of. It's all just bees. Not the, the, not the bees. <laughs> and that's another one where people didn't really give him the benefit of the doubt. And there was a, a portion of the fan community anyway that was liking it because it was bad. And Cage would give interviews and was like, no, we, we knew what we were doing. We knew how ridiculous this was. I think that's another kind of factor in, in the pleasure of watching him is not knowing how self-aware he is quite. Obviously, there's a degree of it, but how far does it go? And that's why this this turn to the outright meta that we're about to see is is a bit risky for him. It's scary. Yeah. Well, it was such a pleasure talking with you about Cage. Yes. This is great. Thank you. Let's do it again for McConaughey. Same time. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right. (laughs) Right I mean, just Magic Mike alone, my God. Yes. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times has called us America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only 1697.